We may like to think that countries zealously guard their nuclear materials so nothing, nothing gets into the hands of our enemies. But then you hear a British activist report that Apparently we've got documentation showing this. It's orders, basically, for cylinders of uranium hexafluoride that have gone from Springfield to St. Petersburg in Russia and other places as well. So it, it makes a, a complete nonsense of the idea of weapons of mass destruction when countries are actually supplying each other with the nuclear materials. When you hear information like that, you know that you are in the seat we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we learn about the nuclear issues in the north of the UK, where activists in Cumbria are fighting government plans for a geological nuclear waste dump in their World Heritage Site water-dense region. We'll talk with Marianne Birkby, who founded Radiation Free Lakeland and who is leading the fight against a range of nuclear issues in her region that have the potential to impact us all. Plus, We'll have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than got tweeted about by any world leader this week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 26, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Catching up with international news this week... We begin with this hopeful note sent by Mary Olson at Nuclear Information and Resource Service, and that's the reminder that the United Nations opened the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons for Nations to Sign as of September 20th. At last check, 49 nations have signed, and when one more, when we have 50 signatures, the treaty will go into force for those nations after 90 days. This is a step, a major international step, towards a nuclear ban for all countries, including those who already have the weapons. And even here in the United States, if you're in a country that has not yet signed on to the treaty, contact your officials, let them know that you want it signed, and let's start the groundswell that will hopefully lead to the total abolition of nuclear weapons. Let's hope it comes in time, because between President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un of North Korea, the saber-rattling rhetoric is getting pretty thick. To recap, in a speech before the UN General Assembly on September 19, Donald Trump vowed to, quote, totally destroy 
North Korea, a country of 25 million people, if the U.S. is forced to defend itself or its allies. He also called Kim Jong-un rocket man on a suicide mission. Lobbing the ball right back, Kim said he would make the U.S., quote, pay dearly for threatening his country's destruction and that he was considering the highest level of hardline countermeasure in history, which is a more than little hint that could mean a detonation of a powerful hydrogen bomb over the Pacific Ocean. On Saturday, Trump had appeared to condone the assassinations of both North Korea's foreign minister, Ri Yong-ho, and Kim, and has said that all options are on the table, including military action, for dealing with the North Korean crisis, which is much of his own making. The White House also has maintained that diplomacy is the preferred route, and I really wish someone would define that term for Nikki Haley at the United Nations because she has also been ramping up the rhetoric. North Korea has fired two ballistic missiles over Japan's North Hokkaido region in the past month, and appears to be threatening to explode a nuclear bomb over the Pacific Ocean, although it's also possible to put a bomb on a ship and detonate it on the surface of the ocean. Now, North Korean's Foreign Minister Ri Yong-ho has said that the U.S. had declared war on the country, while also threatening to shoot down U.S. bombers, even if they are not in the country's airspace. What's missing in all of this so-far-only war of words is that North Korea has continuously offered to freeze its nuclear program. While the Washington Post and many other publications have said that Kim Jong-un has shown no interest in talks, there is a big difference between North Korea saying it will never negotiate to halt or eliminate its nuclear weapons program, which is what's being reported in the echo chamber, and that it will never negotiate as long as the United States continues to threaten it. The reality is that North Korea is saying that under certain circumstances, it will put its nuclear weapons on the table. As Noam Chomsky explained in an interview with Democracy Now! and Amy Goodman, the proposal to freeze the North Korean missile and nuclear weapons systems calls for a quid pro quo. It says in return, the United States should put an end to threatening military maneuvers on North Korea's borders, which happen to include under President Trump, and include sending of nuclear-capable B-52s flying right near the border. These are yearly war games that are held there. We also need to remember that at the end of the Korean War, there was no end of the Korean War. There was only a ceasefire. The war footing still holds, and it is the other aspect of North Korea's demands on the United States that we come to a settlement of the war, 63 years after the ceasefire. At last report, as we are recording this, nuclear Armageddon has not yet taken place between the United States and North Korea. Stay tuned. In France, on Wednesday, September 20th, Police raided several locations in Bure, 180 miles east of Paris, targeting opponents of the nuclear waste disposal project set to take place in that area. Police framed it as a search for drugs, but what they seized were computers, hard drives, and portable phones. During this time, roadblocks were put up. Underreported in the media 
was the reason for the protests, and that is the flaw that has been found in the planned technology for the nuclear waste facility. The plans call for the burying of waste in clay atop a geothermal source, meaning a hot spring. It has been shown by the protesters that within 16 minutes, the clay meant to provide decades, if not hundreds of years of protection, dissolves into gravel clumps when they are in contact with the geothermal water. While not a slam dunk, a better process would be to create a storage facility in hard rock, which is actively pumped for water leakages found in underground facilities and monitored in perpetuity. Given that France's current prime minister, Edouard Philippe, worked as public affairs officer for the French nuclear industry, and his communications director, Charles Hofnagel, worked for the French state-owned nuclear twin companies, EDF and Arriva, it's not likely that there will be any give on this issue, and the pressure will continue on the activists. As one said, they are creating permanent tension in order to break people. In Australia... Aboriginal people in South Australia are fighting a plan to ship nuclear waste from Scotland amid fears that it will be dumped on land regarded as culturally and spiritually sacred. Waller Burdina, around 280 miles north of Adelaide, has been earmarked as a possible location for Australia's first nuclear waste dump, despite claims that it is a priceless heritage site rich in archaeological treasures, including burial mounds, fossilized bones, and stool tones. Some have claimed the impact would be similar to building a waste dump in the heart of the Vatican. British atomic bomb tests in the area in the 1950s took place without permission from the affected Aboriginal groups, and thousands were adversely affected, with many Aboriginal people left suffering from radiological poisoning. They've seen it before. They don't want to see it again and forever. Three stories from the former Soviet Union. Chernobyl, the site of one of the world's two worst nuclear accidents, the other being Fukushima. Chernobyl lacks space for radioactive waste burial. It already has about 20,000 cubic meters of liquid radioactive waste, but the exclusion zone has not enough space to store such amounts. As for solid waste, they expect the amount to exceed over 300,000 what they are calling packages, but the specially equipped shallow ground repository for solid radioactive waste was designed to contain only 70,000. Oops! Russian officials are still what's referred to as house hunting in northwest Russia for a place to store nuclear waste. The radioactive nuclear chickens have come home to roost only there's no place for them to do so. And Belarus has not learned its nuclear lesson. It is proceeding with Russian-built nuclear facilities despite accidents, quake worries, neighbors' objections, and the need to help Chernobyl victims. Beginning after the meltdown in 1986, 70% of Chernobyl's fallout poured upon the neighboring country, Belarus. But now, over 30 years later, Russia is selling a new nuclear power station to Belarus, where it will sit on the border with Lithuania. At the same time, the Belarusian government is failing to care for the victims of Chernobyl's radiation. They're investing billions of dollars in new nuclear. In Canada, 
35 prominent Canadians, including chiefs of First Nations, leaders of major public interest groups, elected officials, scientists, and doctors, have written a collective letter to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau asking him to stand up for the health and safety of Canadians by suspending three ill-considered projects to abandon long-lived radioactive waste beside major water bodies like the Ottawa and Winnipeg Rivers and Lake Huron. Right now, a policy vacuum is allowing a consortium of private nuclear multinational corporations to adopt quick and dirty approaches to radioactive waste, quote-unquote, disposal that will jeopardize future generations of Canadians. The letter challenges Trudeau to stop the consortium's ill-considered plans and to initiate a broad consultation with First Nations and other Canadians to formulate a federal policy on caring for radioactive wastes other than irradiated nuclear fuel. A proposal to import as much as 10,000 tons of radioactive material from Canada into the United States for processing has several environmental groups trying to reverse a decision by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Yeah, the NRC gave approval to this. Unitech Services Group, located in the United States, plans to ship the Canadian material to Royersford, Pennsylvania, 32 miles from Philadelphia, and Morris, Illinois. 66 miles outside of Chicago. Potential risks include being downwind of a processing facility, the potential for radiation to enter the sewer system, which ultimately discharges into the Schuylkill River in Pennsylvania, or exposure along transportation routes, otherwise known as Mobile Chernobyl. The call for reversal of the NRC approval comes from Nuclear Information and Resource Service, Beyond Nuclear, the Nuclear Energy Information Service, the Tennessee Environmental Council, and Citizens for Alternatives to Chemical Contamination. Workers at the Los Alamos National Laboratories violated safety measures twice last month, according to a report in the Santa Fe New Mexican. Both incidents were detailed in a recent report by the Defense Nuclear Facilities Safety Board. In the first incident, workers mishandled plutonium metals. The second incident occurred just 11 days later, when nearly a dozen workers were exposed to particles that caused radioactive contamination to at least one worker. In Colorado, state health officials have revealed that landfills have been illegally burying low-level radioactive waste from the oil and gas industry that they are not approved to handle. Improperly disposed of waste includes sludge from filter bags, pipelines and storage tanks, and possibly drill cuttings some of it radioactive. Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment regulators said they don't know of any imminent threat to public health. One of those misdirecting words that means it's not going to happen immediately, but you know, it is going to happen down the line. Health officials are trying to stop the practice and make new rules for low-level radioactive waste. In Japan, on September 20th, a 6.2-magnitude earthquake struck the Japanese coast near Fukushima. At the wrecked and leaking Fukushima nuclear facility, Japan's government and Tokyo Electric Power Company say they need more time before they remove spent nuclear fuel rods in two of the reactors. The rods are in storage pools and now won't be removed until fiscal 2023, long after the 2020 Olympics.
And Japan's Nuclear Regulation Authority warns that five nuclear power plants that have passed safety clearances may be at risk of having their cooling systems crippled during huge eruptions of nearby volcanoes. We will have an extensive report next week bringing us up to date on all the nuclear news from Japan. And now... Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear Hot Seed None that's out a week The World Nuclear Association just cracks me up. As reported in my favorite target, World Nuclear News, the WNA's newly published fuel report indicates that, by their own estimates, by 2035, the United States might be losing 11 reactor units. It may be losing 30 reactor units. And the best they can come up with is losing two, gaining five. I wouldn't bet on that one. This is the industry reporting on its own bad news. But it gets better than that because at the association's recent annual symposium in London, they interviewed Michael Pasilio, who is chief operating officer of Exelon Generation, who says he is, quote, optimistic that we won't do nothing. So, okay, all you guys who've sold your soul in order to write for World Nuclear News, could you please give him some corrections on English grammar? Even better, as this guy was sitting there and mouthing off that if you love mom, apple pie, and the American flag, you just gotta love nukes, they were actually calling this interview Pasilio's hot seat interview. Thanks, guys. I mean... I knew you were listening, but if you think you're clever in ripping off my lingo, realize that all you did was help advertise nuclear hot seat, though you did misspell it. Everybody from this show knows that hot seat is one word, not two. But still, I'll take that as a nod in my direction, and thank you so much. And as for the grammatically challenged Michael Pasilio whose seat may have been warmed, but it certainly wasn't hot, I'm going to name you as this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. We'll have our featured interview in just a moment, but first, do-do-do-do-do-do-do, it's my birthday, do-do-do-do-do-do, and Nuclear Hot Seed needs your support. So why don't we put it all in one place and call it a party? Help me celebrate and support the show all at the same time. Be this a one-time donation of any size or a monthly sustaining donation, it all helps to keep the flow of honest, verified nuclear information out into the world and to you, the listenership. Fewer calories than birthday cake and more energizing than even that monthly cup of coffee I'm always talking about. So give what you can by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. Or to quickly set up a monthly $5 donation, that's the coffee donation I was talking about, click on the big green Donate button. Let's throw Nuclear Hot Seat and me one heck of a birthday party. I welcome your attendance and am grateful that you're here. Here's this week's interview. Marianne Birkby is a wildlife artist who founded Radiation Free Lakeland in 2008 to oppose geological dumping of nuclear waste and new nuclear developments in Cumbria in the UK. 
The group's aim is nuclear safety, and that has recently included spearheading a campaign to stop a new coal mine within close proximity of Sellafield. We spoke on Monday, September 25th, 2017. Marianne Berkby, thanks so much for joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you. Let's start out with some background for people who may not be familiar with nuclear issues in the UK. Where is Cumbria and what is the nuclear situation there? Cumbria is uh, is pretty isolated. I mean, even to people in London, you know, you say you live in Cumbria and they say, well, where's that? It's up very near Scotland. So basically, it's the uh, the northwest of um, England, the northwest top of England. And what kind of nuclear facilities or problems exist in that area? Really, we've got the lion's share of the uh, the problem. We've got uh, Sellafield. Sellafield is the back end of the nuclear industry. That's where all the uh, spent fuel goes to sit, basically, in ponds of water to be cooled for decades. And um, Sellafield also does something called uh, reprocessing, which is supposedly to uh, strip out parts of the uh, nuclear spent fuel to, uh, to reuse. But in practical terms, it, uh, that hardly ever happens. You know, hardly any of the uranium is used. And as most people know, you know, plutonium is kind of used for very nasty purposes of uh, making bombs. So it is basically the UK's waste dump for nuclear materials that come out of reactors or any other manufacturing. Would that be accurate? That's pretty much it. It may not be the actual biggest, but I think it's got the world's largest stockpile of plutonium there. And if you look at an aerial map of uh, Umbria, it's a very, very rural area. It's beautiful. You've got lakes, mountains, the rivers, a beautiful coastline. Um, but if you Google um, Sellafield, you'll see that that's the biggest area of concrete in Cumbria and probably in the, uh, the northwest. I mean, originally there would have been um, a river meandering from the mountains to the sea. And Sellafield was kind of plonked there as, I think originally it was um, a Royal Ordnance factory for the uh, Second World War for making uh, explosives, for making TNT. But what Sellafield has done is made it into a channel. They've made it really into like a radioactive sewer going right through the centre of the site. How close is it to the ocean? It's literally metres away from the ocean. The risk of inundation there, especially from tidal surges into the river um, Calder, is, is really quite a scary thought. Of course, nuclear reactors need their bodies of water in order to keep them cool. And the same thing with waste that is being stored there. Have there been any nuclear reactors there? And if so, are they still active? No, there's no active uh, nuclear reactors. Uh, well, not that we know of. We never know with the nuclear industry what, you know, what they say they're doing and what they're actually doing is, a, is another matter. But no reactors there. But the first reactor was the um, wind scale reactors and they were called piles so it's wind scale number one and number two piles those were the original reactors on Sellafield um I, I wasn't actually called Sellafield there it's called wind scale and that was to produce plutonium for the bomb basically I mean it was part of the uh, Manhattan project 
I think there was uh, quite a lot of uh, links between Britain and America, you know, regarding nuclear collaboration. And I think uh, Windscale was the English version of Hanford. So we've got our very own Hanford here in a very rural area of Cumbria. In filling us in on the background, the nuclear background of England, there was a fire at Windscale. Tell us about it and what happened there. Uh, it's a 60-year anniversary, if you can call it an anniversary, of that fire is coming up on the 10th of October. So it was 1957. Windscale number one caught fire. Um, that is a huge chimney. I mean, it's called a pile, but it's a chimney. So it was actually the graphite that um, that exceeded its heat. So it, it became really hot. Caught fire and the whole thing was kind of uh, hushed up. Um, I think it was about 11 tonnes of uranium is said to have been ablaze for days on end. The reactor was close to collapsing down. What we would call a meltdown? That's right, yes. Pretty much a meltdown. And when you look at some of the pictures of the rods from the graphite core, you can see the the reactor fuel has actually um, disappeared. That would have gone out across the Lake District not just the Lake District, but the whole of Europe was uh, was impacted on. And was there any kind of notification that went out, or was it covered by the news? You're saying it was hushed up. Was there any kind of warning to people in the area and those who would be downwind of it that there was a radiation danger coming from wind scale? Nothing. There was no warning. There was no evacuation. There was no iodine pills. There was no no nothing. You know, people were just left in the dark. The workers were told to return to the plant. Obviously, they knew something was up. Um, the rumours that something was happening, it was, a you know, people could see the um, smoke coming out of the chimney. So, obviously, they knew something was happening. But people really didn't have a clue back then in 1957 about the dangers of nuclear power and, and radiation. You know, people were pretty much um, in the dark about it. But two big releases of radiation, the first one with the uh, fire and then the second one when they actually tried to put the fire out with water, which actually, it worked. I mean, that was a miracle, really, that, and testimony to the people on the site that actually managed to get it under um, some sort of control. It was a horrendous thing that um, nobody was told about it. There was gallons and millions of gallons of milk that were poured down the drain, that, but that was days and days afterwards. So there was a tremendous amount of contamination that was released. Were the reactors allowed to go back online after that, or did it lead to a shutdown? Yes, it did lead to um, a shutdown of the wind scale. And also, the name was changed pretty rapidly from wind scale to Sellafield. <laughs> like that was going to make it any. Like that was going to yeah, make it any better. Magic, just like that, just like a puff of fairy dust. And, um, no more problem with wind scale. Wind scale's gone, out of consciousness. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not, it's not funny, but it's um, because I think we're still feeling the effects of wind scale today. There was absolutely every radioactive isotope you could think of that would be um, released. At the top of the, uh, the wind scale piles, there was a filter placed, a massive filter placed on top. Was it placed before or after the accident? No, it was placed before the accident, but it was uh, John Cockroft that um, insisted that this filter was placed on top to try and trap any radioactivity resulting from an incident or a fire. And thank God that uh, he did, but 
it's kind of hailed as a, as a big success, that which, you know, you could say it was a success that they put the filter on top. But the final verdict is that we're still feeling the effects today of, of wind scale with excess cancers and leukemias and um, every other um, radiation-linked disease that you can think of. I think that's, we're still feeling the effects of the wind scale legacy 60 years on. So Windscale had this fire. The reactors were then decommissioned but left behind this legacy, of course, of waste. How does that relate to the current situation in Cumbria? Decommissioned is kind of a misnomer, really, because it's actually still there. All that rubbish, all that radioactive, um, as I call it, crapola, is still actually on the site, so decommissioning is a bit of a funny word, really. It's kind of suggests that it's um, everything's sort of all been tidied up and tidied away and it's all very safe now, but it's not. The wind scale pile is still there. It's still teetering. It's a 400-foot chimney and it's still there above the um, radioactive ponds of uh, spent fuel. Although Sellafield kind of give themselves um, awards every now and then for uh, all their hitting their decommissioning targets... It's all nonsense. You know, the awards are pretty meaningless, really, when you look at the actual evidence. All that radioactive waste is actually still there. As regards where we are now, the nuclear industry is talking about a new build right next door to Sellafield on the green fields, where there's another river, the River Ian. It's the next in the line to be trashed by the nuclear industry. It's just absolute madness. This is so typical of the nuclear industry to ignore their mistakes, not clean them up, and then continue to barrel forward with whatever their plans are, backed by their own propaganda. Exactly, yeah, and that's what it is. It's propaganda, and uh, in uh, Cumbria especially, I mean, we've been treated to decades of propaganda. You won't find any sort of um, public body or virtually, well, literally any conservation group that's not been given a nuclear bribe. It's really sad to say, but there's conservation groups that are being given money from the nuclear industry. And it's not actually nuclear industry money, it's public money. It's public money that's, we're sort of being bribed with our own money. What kind of opposition has been stated and put forward against new build and against the treatment of the land around Sellafield, formerly Windscale? Well, the opposition has really come from um, campaigners on the ground, radiation-free Lakeland, uh, Cumbrians opposed to a radioactive environment. I think that's about it. You know, the, uh, the opposition has been... Um, really sort of uh, gagged. What about conservation groups, something like uh, Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth or any local groups you might have, because you have described that this is the Lakes region, this is a particularly beautiful area. What concern about the nuclear issue has come forth from regular conservation groups? Obviously, there is... um Huge concern from members of Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth. But uh, nationally, there is no sort of coordinated campaign to oppose new build at um, Sellafield. And it's being called Muicide, the, the new build. As regards conservation groups in Cumbria, there's lots of different groups. But um, they're all really keeping their heads down as regards the nuclear industry, either keeping their heads down or actually nailing their colours to the new build mast. And that really sort of makes the hair on the back of your um, 
your head go up. But that's not just happened sort of overnight. That's been a long decades of propaganda, decades of the right people being put into place. For example, the Lake District National Park Authority, which is big. I mean, it's a national park. You'd think that would be vehemently opposed to a new build. But no, um, they're actually talk about new nuclear build as being the heritage of uh, Cumbria. It's part of the heritage of Cumbria as a nuclear industry. But again, there's been people sort of put in place. Um, it sounds a very sort of conspiracy theory, this, but it's actually facts. The Lake District National Park Partnership is led by Lord Clark, who um, up until very recently was um, a director of Sellafield. It's not happened overnight, this. It's been a very, very long, decades-long sort of enveigling of Cumbrian... I don't say it's Cumbrian people, because I think many people now are actually feeling quite angry about the prospect of new build. The leaders in Cumbria are really sort of uh, pushing for, um, for new nuclear build, which is madness. It's very much the same here, and I think everywhere where the push for nuclear is top-down, when the facts are known, the pushback is from grassroots up. But it's a matter of who has the power and who holds the sway, and it takes massive numbers of people to even get attention put on these, let alone to change anything in national policy. So talk to me about Radiation Free Lakeland. What is the group and how did it come about? We're all volunteers, nobody's paid, so we're all volunteers. Um, and how we came about is because of the uh, plan for the geological dumping of nuclear waste under Cumbria. I kept thinking, I mean, I'm a member of lots of different groups, um, Friends of the Earth, um, <clears throat> Support Greenpeace. You know, I'm a member of a, a huge amount of uh, different sort of uh, environmental groups because I'm a wildlife artist and it's kind of um, who I am, really. I just love wildlife and uh, nature and but it became really clear to me that it, nobody was actually going to be uh, standing up and saying anything. And I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm really not a leader. I'm not a good speaker. I can sort of cobble a sentence together online and draw a picture. But as for standing up in front, front of people, I'd rather somebody else did it. But it really became clear that nobody was going to do that. Nobody was going to take an eloquent and uh, impassioned stance against geological dumping. And so in 2008, we set up Radiation Free Lakeland. We uh, went out on the streets and we did lots of street theatre, dressing up as um, Beatrix Potter and Peter Rabbit and barrels of uh, nuclear waste being rowed across the lakes and um, all sorts of things that we did to uh, draw attention to the fact that nuclear waste was about to be dumped underneath Cumbria. And uh, this plan was kind of a, a rehash of a, a previous plan in 1997, but so much worse, this plan was going to include high-level radioactive waste. And back in 1997, all the groups, all the uh, groups had come together, about a whole host of groups, um, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, had come together to oppose in 1997 and spent a lot of time and energy and national adverts in the paper. But in 2008, when it was a bigger, bigger plan, there seemed to be nothing happening. But as soon as we started doing this, as soon as we started sort of talking about it, more people came on board. Other people got petitions going and we talked to councillors, to planners, and um, we really made the case against geological dumping. I mean, the Lake District is, uh, the reason it's beautiful is because it's got such a diverse geology. 
and that diverse geology obviously means that yeah, it's all uh, fractured and um, lots of streams underground, lots of aquifers. And uh, we make, we're making the point that in such a wet area, with such high mountains to drive the uh, rainfall down the mountains as well, there shouldn't be nuclear dumping. There shouldn't be any geological dumping of nuclear waste because it, eventually the waste would percolate back to the surface sooner or later. We engaged the help of uh, geologists, um, David Smythe and um, Stuart Hazeldean, and uh, they really put a huge amount of effort into describing to the people of Cumbria exactly what would happen if nuclear waste was dumped underground. At this point in our interview, I realized that we hadn't covered some basic points necessary to the understanding of what the government had planned for Cumbria. So we dropped back a little in the information flow and picked it up from there. The government in the UK has plans for a geological waste dump under Cumbria. When did this first come about and what are they wanting to do? In uh, 1997, the government wanted to dump low-level and intermediate-level waste under Cumbria. There was a big fight against that. It it stopped the plan. But uh, the government came back with a plan in uh, 2008 to dump high-level waste under Cumbria. I mean, they've kind of uh, done all the different ways that they can think of to... um, They've had huge sort of discussions about how to get rid of the waste, sending it into space, um, burying it in deep single boreholes, or just a huge, huge sort of cavernous um, depository underground, a 1,000 feet underground, which is as deep as our highest uh, mountain here in the Lake District, and uh, miles and miles wide. And this new plan that they came up with was for to include the high level, the heat generating nuclear waste, which was absolutely an appalling idea. This was the government plan. It's, it was kicked into touch, thankfully, um, in um, 2013, but it's still on the back burner. Government has now changed the law to make this a nationally significant infrastructure project, which means... There will be no right of veto from councils. There will be no public inquiry. Um, Basically, it's decided by the uh, Secretary of State. So although the plan was kicked into touch in 2013, government has changed the law to try and push this on Cumbria. And Cumbrians are very angry about it. What kind of fight back has there been most recently against this new set of plans since the changing of the law? Well, I think we're sort of just taking a breath. We're just taking a breath because we don't know what... The law has been changed very quietly. We fought against it. We fought against that law being passed in Parliament, and it was done in a sort of secretive way. It was kind of not done in the full House of Parliament or anything. It was just done in a back room, just an agreement between politicians. Uh, There was no discussion on it to speak of. A vote was taken just to um, really rubber stamp geological dumping of uh, nuclear waste by making it a nationally significant infrastructure project. Fight back hasn't really sort of um, started on that because we don't know where we are with it. The government hasn't said the law has been changed, but they kind of haven't come back and said, yes, we're looking again at Cumbria. They haven't said that deliberately. They've kind of said, well, we're looking across the whole of the UK. We might be looking at um, Wales. We might be looking at... um, the southern counties. 
But we know very well that Cumbria will be the, the fall guy for this plan. So I think people are just were pretty exhausted after the fight back in 2013 to stop the geological dumping. And now it's a sort of a taking a breath to see what we can do, really. You're coming up on October 10th, which is the 60th anniversary of the wind scale fire. And that was the first major nuclear accident in the UK. We've already discussed the fire. With the anniversary coming up, what kind of plans have been put in place to commemorate it from your perspective? And how might that be used to raise awareness about this change of law and this setting up of Cumbria, as you said, as the fall guy? to take the high-level nuclear waste. Go. On the 9th of October, we're going to um, be holding a demonstration at Springfields. What is Springfields? Springfields is where nuclear fuel is birthed. It's where the nuclear fuel would have made, been made for, uh, for wind scale. It's where the nuclear fuel is made for every nuclear power station in the UK. So it's still in full operation? It's still in full operation, and I think up until very, very recently, it was actually taking uranium from uh, Cameco in Canada and converting it to uranium hexafluoride and sending it back. So there's very great links with other countries as well, including Russia. I mean, they've actually done work for Russia. What kind of work have they done for Russia? Apparently, we've got documentation showing this, Online, it's orders, basically, for cylinders of uranium hexafluoride that have gone from Springfields to St. Petersburg in Russia and other places as well. So it, it makes a, a complete nonsense of the idea of weapons of mass destruction when countries are actually supplying each other with the nuclear materials. We asked a Freedom of Information request exactly on how much transfer of nuclear materials there has been between uh, Springfields in the UK, Preston, UK, and um, Russia. And we got an answer back from the Office for Nuclear Regulation saying that we would need to pay £600 to have that information. We've only got £200 in our kitty bank. <laughs> so I've... <laughs> Time for a GoFundMe. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sorry, before that happens, I'm going to... Um, We've written a complaint to the Information Commissioner saying that this is um, really information the public should have. I mean, we're funding weapons of mass destruction. We want to know if, the, if Russia, supposedly the other side, has been in receipt of nuclear materials. It just seems a nonsense. That is an amazing piece of information. And it speaks to the need of a lot more investigation on the part of Nuclear Hot Seat, to see what we can find out about that. That would be wonderful. Thank you. What can you tell us about the plans that you have for the demonstration at Springfield? Right. Well, we're going to be joining with uh, anti-fracking campaigners um, because Springfield is just five miles from the UK's first active frack site, which is absolute bonkers because we know that fracking causes earthquakes and you think, well, we've got all that nuclear fuel on the site and apparently thousands of containers of uranium hexafluoride. 
so we're going to be joining with uh, anti-fracking campaigners and standing outside the gates of uh, Springfields with a freshly minted banner and uh, really just raising attention on um, on the whole nuclear issue and the fact that the nuclear fuel for the windscale fire was made at Springfields, where you know all the other nuclear fuel is made for the UK. And on October the 10th, we're going to be in uh, Keswick, which is the heart of the Lake District. It's a really beautiful um, town. And uh, we're going to be um, holding a vigil there, leafleting and chatting to people as well. After the vigil at Keswick, we're going to go to Sellafield. And in the shadow of the still teetering windscale chimney, there's a plaque a memorial plaque to the uh, firefighters and uh, people that have been affected by the fire. And so we're going to be laying an autumn wreath on a memorial plaque. And then we're going to have a busy day that day on the 10th of October. But um, following that, then we're going to, uh, it's just a, a mile or so down the road, to uh, the beautiful church of St Bridget's at the Kermit. And we're going to have a short walk to view the uh, proposed, where the proposed reactors would be, which is on a beautiful, beautiful um, area of river, the River Ian. The church at the Kermit has got the Viking crosses in it, and they've got these inscriptions. I don't know if you've heard of rune, rune inscriptions, but nobody knows what they mean. Nobody knows what these inscriptions mean, and they're probably about maybe 1,300 years old, something like that. Uh, well, the waste lasts from muicide would last a hell of a lot longer than that. Uh, so how are we going to tell future generations? Do not dig here. How are we going to do that? Always the problem with nuclear waste, how we warn future generations. If people want to get in contact with you, join the group, do something to support it, how can they do so? We're on Facebook, so you can uh, find us there, Radiation Free Lakeland, and uh, that's probably the easiest way to find us. We'll look forward to, uh, to meeting uh, other like-minded people and uh, really sort of stopping this nuclear juggernaut in its tracks. Any final thought, anything that we haven't covered that you would like to share with us now? Well, just to say that uh, we're a really sort of inclusive group. Uh, we've included also Sellafield workers, scientists, um, just about every walk of life that you could think of, just everybody. The thing is that the nuclear industry really does impact on everybody. We all have to come together on this and um, say a big, big fat no to nuclear. Marianne Burkby, you're doing great work there. I wish you all the best, especially with the upcoming protests that you have on October 9th and 10th. And thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you very much, Livio. Really enjoyed it. And uh, what, what an honor to, uh, to be here as well amongst such um, brilliant people. That was Marianne Birkby of Radiation Free Lakeland. We'll share some of her group's links up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 327. And know that you can always connect with her on Facebook under Radiation Free Lakeland. Activist shout-out! The Coalition Against Nukes has put out the call for us to take action and call our representatives and insist that they co-sponsor the Restrict First Use of Nuclear Weapons Act of 2017. That would be House Bill 669 and Senate Bill 200. This legislation was introduced last January by Congressman Ted Lieu of Los Angeles and Senator Edward Markey of Massachusetts. The legislation would prohibit the president 
from launching a nuclear first strike without a declaration of war by Congress. Considering the recent ratcheting up of languaging and threats between the United States and North Korea, this legislation could not be more timely. Among its supporters, William J. Perry, former Secretary of Defense, who said, During my period as Secretary of Defense, I never confronted a situation or could even imagine a situation in which I would recommend that the president make a first strike with a nuclear weapon, understanding that such an action, whatever the provocation, would likely bring about the end of civilization. I believe that the legislation proposed by Congressman Liu and Senator Markey recognizes that terrible reality. Certainly a decision that momentous for all of civilization should have the kind of checks and balances on executive powers called for by our Constitution. Derek Johnson, executive director of Global Zero, said, One modern nuclear weapon is more destructive than all the bombs detonated in World War II combined. Yet there is no check on a president's ability to launch the thousands of nuclear weapons at his command. That such devastating power is concentrated in one person is an affront to our democracy's founding principles. The proposed legislation is an important first step to reining in this autocratic system and making the world safer from a nuclear catastrophe. And Tom Z. Kalina, policy director of Plowshares Fund, said, As it stands now, Congress has a larger role in deciding on the number of military bans than on preventing nuclear catastrophe. So hopefully that's a bit of motivation for you to put it on your agenda, if not for today, then tomorrow, tomorrow morning, to call your representative and your senators and get them on board for House Bill 669 and Senate Bill 200. If that's not enough to motivate you, here are some additional resources. The Union of Concerned Scientists has put together a brilliant resource. It is a visual representation of every nuclear bomb in the U.S. arsenal. They really break it down so that it's understandable. It's interactive, so you can play around with it a little bit. And it should go a long way towards convincing you that we really don't need nukes, let alone that many. There are also available computer models that show exactly what would happen to Earth after a nuclear war. Not a pretty picture, but one we need to know about to make certain that we never get a chance to find out for real. And remember that if your country has not yet signed the United Nations ban on nuclear weapons, now is the time to contact your officials. Yes, even those of us in the United States where it's kind of a snowball's chance in hell that we'll ever sign on to it. But still, other countries can. 49 countries have already signed on. One more, and it's international law. And the first official legal step towards global abolition of nuclear weapons. We will have links to all of these resources, plus the ever-popular Nuke Map by Alex Wollerstein, up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, the episode number 327. Here's today's final thought. We were saddened to just learn of the passing of Stanislav Petrov last May. He's known as the man who saved the world because that's what he did, though none of us knew it at the time. 
He was featured in the film, a documentary with reenactments called The Man Who Saved the World, and we featured that on Nuclear Hot Seat number 223, September 29 of 2015, if you want to hear more about the film. But for those of you not familiar with his name or what he did, he was a Soviet staff officer who prevented a nuclear crisis between the U.S. and the USSR and possibly World War III. On September 26, 1983, Stanislav Petrov was on duty in charge of an early warning radar system in a bunker near Moscow. That's when he saw the radar screen show a single missile inbound from the United States and headed towards the Soviet Union. While trying to control panic in the control room, a siren went off for a second time, and his computer screen flashed the word saying, Start! Four more missiles were shown to have been launched. As he had been trained, from the moment the warheads had taken off, there was only half an hour for the Kremlin to decide on whether to push the red button in retaliation and just 15 minutes for Petrov to determine whether the threat was real and report it to his commanders. In a 2010 interview, he said, I was scared. I knew the level of responsibility at my fingertips. But despite his fear, Petrov kept a calm head and realized that he had been taught that in case of a real attack, the United States would have gone on an all-out offensive. So Petrov told his bosses the alarm must have been caused by a system malfunction. And it was later revealed that what the Soviet satellites took for missile launches was sunlight reflected from clouds. Still, Petrov's actions received no praise, and he was scolded for not filling in a service journal. For over ten years, the incident was kept secret as highly classified. Even Petrov's wife, Raisa, who died in 1997, didn't know anything of the role her husband played in averting nuclear war. In his honor, September 26th has been named Nuclear Abolition Day. But late-life acknowledgement proved a thin thing, too little and too late, to mean much of anything to his life, and having meaning only to those who bestowed it out of gratitude. Like Moses, like Van Gogh, Stanislav Petrov's achievement brought him no fame, no rewards, and no ultimate fulfillment, except for the fact of its doing. I wonder... How many of us would have the courage, the fortitude, the strength against training and odds the entire Soviet military system and decide to follow our gut and risk treason, if not personal annihilation, in order to not be the linchpin in causing the end of the world? We all got lucky on September 26, 1983, that Stanislav Petrov, was the man in command in that Russian bunker, and not someone of less merit. So let's all raise a glass of whatever it is that we toast with, and give our thanks to Stanislav Petrov, because without him, none of us would be here. Nazdrovya, splasibo, Stanislav Petrov. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 26, 2017. 
Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, nears.org, japantimes.co.jp, reuters.com, newyorktimes.com, realnews24.com, litbyimagination.blogspot.jp, and its writer, Dennis Riches, miningawareness.wordpress.com, tas.com, heraldscotland.com, bellona.org, ccnr.org, dailylocal.com, kob.com, denverpost.com, bloomberg.com, unilad.co.uk, nhk.or.jp, ucsusa.org, popsci.com, coalitionagainstnukes.org, rt.com, washingtonpost.com, Nuclear Hot Seat listener supporters Bill Smirnoff and James Torson for the information they sent along, simplyinfo.com and its alter ego fukuleaks.org, the self-hating cubicle drones at World Nuclear News who traded their souls for a paycheck because they didn't have the guts to pursue their own writing dreams and that's why they write for World Nuclear News, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, And a shout-out to all the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers who show your love for this planet by being kick-ass supporters of nuclear awareness. You guys rock. Thanks for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog post on Facebook, where you can click on like and follow. Also note that if you sign up in the yellow box on NuclearHotSeat.com, you'll receive an email every week, just one, I won't bug you, but it will have the link to each week's episode. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you know of a broadcast station in your area that would appreciate having the latest in nuclear news dished up fresh every week, send an email with that information to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, 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 but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. My name, the name of the show, the URL. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor as possible, take a moment to send a donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. We'll also call it a birthday present to me, and thank you very much. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you once again that when it comes to nuclear waste, we can't get rid of it because there's no place for it to go, and there's no such thing as a way. Okay, you have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear Hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.